How can we laugh with one another, not at each other? How can we learn a little bit about our fellow teammate, we call them coins, things about them that have nothing to do with playing football? Like, did their parents serve in a military? Do they speak three languages? Were they a transfer from a junior college? Are they the oldest of five siblings? All of these things are coins. And laughing with not at and coins are the two gateways where we can start to like, not do kumbaya and hold hands and do trust falls, but to actually like see one another on a team as more than my backup, more than, oh, that's the walk-on, more than, oh, that's the five-star recruit, and actually look at them as a human being and light each other up so that you can get on the field, be one unit, and you have a much better chance for success against your opponent. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, we are joined by Steve Shenbaum. Steve is the founder and president of Game On Nation, a nationally recognized professional development training firm specializing in the use of game dynamics to improve leadership, team building, and positive culture change. Some of Steve's recent clients include Deloitte, NASCAR, Hilton, the U.S. House of Representatives, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Dallas Cowboys, and the New York Yankees. In this episode, we'll learn about Steve's amazing journey from a working actor and communication coach for Pete Sampras to over 23 years as a business owner, leading a team that delivers programs to corporations, military organizations, and sports teams throughout the world. We also discuss how a cohesive team functions and takes care of its members. This was a really fun conversation for me that actually left me examining my life and how I build relationships with others. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, please subscribe and share with your friends and leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Steve, people call you the magnet because of your magnetic and inviting personality. And I've known you for about 10 years, and that is so true. So what is it about you that loves being in a relationship with other people? Holy cow, Eric, we are jumping right in, huh? (laughs) Now, I'm not the one that says magnet. I have a feeling you got that maybe from one of my staff members. Wow. Oh, my goodness gracious. How do I answer that without coming across totally arrogant? I've always been a fan of the underdog. I think that's part mm-hmm. of it. I, I was an actor and I wasn't the lead man. I was a character actor. I was a good athlete, but not a great athlete. I, I was okay height, but I wasn't the tallest guy in the room. You know, I, I was always sort of in that average. And um, I've always been fascinated by empowering and making people feel validated and heroic. I think part of it is comedy was a huge part of my life. And I always found when comedy was used to bring people down, it really bothered me. And that was at an early age. So I would say part of that is the use of humor to lift people up was something that was really important to me when I was young. And so that sort of started this journey. And I'm not saying everyone is drawn to me by any means. You can't be everyone's best friend. But maybe that's part of where the magnet came from is I always was interested in making other people feel um, valued because I know how powerful it feels when I feel valued. Uh, we live in a very egocentric world right now. That's probably been going on for a very long time. But now with social media and stuff, it can, all be, it can be all about us. But when we turn that spotlight on somebody else, it makes you feel good inside. 
but it also brings out the best in other people. And I've seen you do that time and time again and one-on-one conversations and how you make people feel. And, and that's, that's really cool to hear. So you're from California, correct? Where'd you grow up in yes. California? Uh, Southern Cal, a town called West Covina, California. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I say it's at 30 miles outside of LA, but it could easily be an hour and a half drive, depending on what day in traffic. So how did you end up at Northwestern? Ooh, these are good. So there's a really specific answer. I went to, I was able to, I was privileged enough to go to a prep school. My grandparents were like, we will get you to a prep school. My parents, we couldn't afford it. But I went to a prep school called Webb in Claremont, California, which is even further east of LA than West Covina. And there was a college counselor, which kind of gets to something, Eric, that we may even address, which is how people impact you. And you never Mm -hmm. forget that mentor, that coach, that family member, the teacher. But there was a, a college counselor named Marilyn Bloom, and she saw me in a play at the high school. That was cool. The college counselor actually went to the play and she pulled me aside that? and said, yeah. And she said, I think a school like Northwestern would be good for you, Steve. I'd never heard of it because I'm from LA. And she had gone to Northwestern. That was her alma mater. Okay. And so she planted that seed as a sophomore. And that got me thinking about, wow, Northwestern and, and the college counselor thinks that it goes back to your first question. The college counselor is like, has sees value in me, like sees potential, this radical, ridiculous, flawed, lost 15 year old, you know, like <laughs> braces, my hair is parted in the middle. I mean, a lot of stuff was not going well during that time. And here's this amazing uh, woman with status who says, you've got potential as an actor and Northwestern's got a really respected theater program. So it was Marilyn Bloom at Webb who planted the seed. And then by my senior year, that became one of my top like five schools that I applied to. And once I got in, I decided, Northwestern would be my choice, and I would study theater there. And uh, it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. What was that transition like from L.A. to Chicago? I have to tell you, I love every one of your questions. It's like, (laughs) oh, I have a story. It was ridiculous because I had no idea how cold it would be. So I remember... Did you go on a trip? Yeah. So here's the interesting part. I did not visit Northwestern before I arrived. I didn't. I did visit other colleges. Webb gives you a week to um, go visit different schools. But at that point, Northwestern, I had not found out if I got accepted yet. So I didn't visit Northwestern. I visited other schools in the Midwest and East Coast. So my first time landing at Northwestern, I was to, to attend as a freshman was the first time I'd ever seen it. I did not have a coat. I had an In-N-Out t-shirt, In-N-Out burger t-shirt because I'm from <laughs> LA. I had like jeans and flip-flops. I was just kind of like, SoCal, man, just be chill. Right not realizing that it could get to be like negative 20, like soon. Early. <laughs> <laughs> so that, like soon. <laughs> soon. <laughs> so North, the, the transition was it's exciting. It was, I was the first person kind of in my family to move outside of Southern Cali. Uh, so much away. That was a big deal. But I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that excitement. But the weather was radical for me. I did not, was not prepared. Um, and then I ended up meeting some wonderful people from all over the world, which was exciting. Wow, because Northwestern is not an easy place to get into. Well, I'll be honest, Eric, I don't know if I can get into it now. No joke. Like, I look back at the requirements of how just competitive all these universities have become. Yeah. And I'm looking at, like, the SAT scores and the, and the GPA and, and the community service. And I'm like, mm, I think I, apply, <laughs> I, I applied at the right, at the, in the right decade. So. There you go. I love it. So you, you're at Northwestern, and then you transition back to L.A. to yeah. pursue acting. Yeah. What was your acting career like? I know you were, you actually, you were a paid actor. Like you actually worked. There's a difference. (laughs) Yes, I love how you say it, paid actor. I stayed in Chicago for a few years, kind of looked at that as like the minor leagues, Uh uh, which it is. And I don't say that in a condescending way. Like 
did theater, did improvisation, really started to see what was my interest after college. So stayed in Chicago for three years, was part of a theater company that I helped establish with college friends. So that was neat. And, you know, kind of just found different jobs to pay the rent and lived that life for a few years, then moved back to LA. And yeah, I mean, it, it, people say, well, what kind of work were you looking for? I'm like, whatever would pay, you know, like, you're not, you're not very, it's like, well, I, I would only, I only do feature films. No, right. you'll do whatever. Yeah. So I did a lot of commercials to begin with. I was a good auditioner and I have a unique look. So that helped. I wasn't really like, oh, I can't wait to get into Hamlet and, and Shakespeare. No, no offense to, to that, but my, my hope was I, I want to make a, a living. And commercials, then sitcoms, and then some feature films. That kind of was the progression between, yeah, like 1996 and like 2002 was my sort of window as an actor in Los Angeles. How about that? So while you're doing this, I understand that you met Pete Sampras. Oh, you have such good info, Eric. I did. I had a, uh, I don't like to drop names, as you know, Eric. Matt Damon said to me once, don't drop names. Um, (laughs) So silly. This is so stupid. So stupid. I wonder if that'll get edited out. So I stole that joke from Bob Hope, by the way. So uh, (laughs) Pete Sampras was dating a dear friend of mine at the time, Kimberly Williams, who's father of the bride. uh, Okay. She she went to Northwestern with me. She's a dear friend and now is married to Brad Paisley. And uh, my goodness, all these names now, it really does sound ridiculous. No, it's fine. Kim introduced me to Pete. They were dating and I I was in a relationship. So we would kind of double date. And Pete and I were so different. It was like when we looked at each other, it was like we were both fascinated. I'm this like high energy, really big, and even back then, even bigger energy, probably a little less self-aware than I am even now. And here's Pete, who would be considered more introverted and a little bit more serious and focused. And the two of us just kind of had this really neat friendship. And he came to me and said, so, you know, Steve, you have a really big personality and, and I know you do improvisation and would you be willing and interested in helping me with my communication skills? And I'm thinking to myself, Eric, this time, here's one of the quietest, most introverted, and I just air quoted that, athletes in the world asking me if I could help him with communication. I thought, what an incredible opportunity. So I yeah. approached it. I approached it in a way that he approached uh, his training. So Paul Anacone was his tennis coach, and I watched them train, and I created curriculum that was as active and experiential as his physical conditioning. So Pete moved a lot and they had a regiment and they had a system and they started and stopped at the right time and everything was in movement and there was like a timer and he would go from service to volleying to stretching, you know, all of this, you know this world because it's it's the world you have existed in. And I decided to do everything with Pete communication wise that had activity, engagement and experiential learning. And that's what started my curriculum was actually one of the quietest athletes in the world, helped me start a communication company. So that's the irony of all of this. Wow. So Pete Sampras, what years was this? It was like 1997. Uh, yeah, that was the first time I started working with Pete. We worked from 97 till about 2002, which then led me to IMG Sports Academy in Bradenton because Pete had trained there as a child. Yeah. And he said to me, during our time together, he's like, you know, Steve, I wish this program was offered when I was a child. And I thought, whoa, what, where are their young Pete Sampras's? And lo and behold, this Boletary, Nick Boletary, IMG Tennis Academy, which is now much bigger than just tennis, yeah. was on the radar. And Pete was able to connect me with the folks at IMG Academy. And that's what transitioned from LA to Bradenton. Wow. Because just on a side note, I was a huge mm-hmm. tennis fan growing up. You know, during the Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras era, I mean, I had, I was in it and I was this chubby kid, skinny legs, big top, kind of playing tennis all the time. (laughs) 
But that's so cool because he is a very introverted person and almost modest mm. in a sense. And then you had Agassi, who was completely, yeah. at least with his clothes, it was very brash. Yes. And remember the, you know. Totally. He was and also very, a very introverted person. They actually have more similarities than people think. But this is interesting, Eric, knowing you as well. Like you said, we've known each other for 10 years and we've spent enough time together. Like you've always been humble. You've always been a great listener. And and I'm not always, and you said, oh, the magnet. Well, I want to address that quickly and then get back to Pete. Like, I wasn't always a magnet. I think people need to understand as you meet people in their, as they're in the midst of their career, that, that that's a process. You know, it's not like I woke up and all of a sudden I was like, like a really dynamic, communicative 12-year-old. I was a wreck and I made mistakes and I still make mistakes. You become sort of someone who can draw others in because you've made a lot of really ridiculous egocentric, prideful mistakes, but no one sees them because you don't do podcasts when you're 13 years old. And if you did, they'd be really awkward. And I wouldn't really have a lot of wisdom to share, you know? So I just want to address that for a second and acknowledge that that comes from mistakes, humility, and reflection. But back to Pete, the thing that really struck me was he was being mocked and shamed for being humble and respectful. And I found that to be a real real problem. Like that really broke my, I'm not saying he's perfect, but like, here's a guy who just goes out and at the time, like just plays great tennis and beats everyone. It's like number one in the world for six straight years. And the headline is like, he needs to be more risky. He needs to be more risque. He needs to be more like dramatic. Like really, is that what we, is that what our appetite really is asking for? So that, that's just something that really I'll never forget was being mocked for being respectful. Yeah, because you were coming out of this McEnroe era. Yeah. And they, they, I think people wanted their best player in the world to be controversial. Yeah. But you don't have to be controversial. You just got to go play and win. And uh, But that's really interesting what you just said. This kind of goes to sort of media training and you've yeah. worked with athletes for so many years. But we, so what do we really want? You know, we, we say, just be respectful and don't be controversial. And then when they are, you're like, man, you're not, you're boring. So then if they're controversial, then we say, well, these athletes, they don't behave well. And it's like, you can't win. If you're quiet and respectful, you're called boring. If you act up and and make poor decisions, like, like lots of young people will do, you're judged and shamed for being a uncontrollable, problematic athlete. So it's just, it's an interesting thing that we all should really acknowledge. Like, what do you really want in your athlete? That is a great point. And I've struggled with that. Even as a coach, mm-hmm. what do I want in my athletes? Do I want an athlete that complies with everything I say? Right. Do I want an athlete that's going to push me a little bit? Yeah. And I found that the best ones are a little bit of both. You need them to be like in a training session. I know this is a little off topic, but you need them oh, to work as a unit. But at the same time, I want them to express themselves to bring situations to the table because guess who's going to be solving the problems on the field? They are. They are, not us. Yeah, yeah. The game goes, it's all about them. But that is so true, especially right now with with social injustice and all these things in the media that we need yeah. to, as a country, we need to fix. Amen. And now athletes have an opportunity. I don't know, was it Chris Paul last night? I'm not a huge basketball person for Oklahoma City. And he was talking, yeah. I think he had a great game that just tied the series 2 2. Yeah. And yeah. he's talking about what we're really concerned about is what's going on in our country. That's why I'm here to play. I'm thankful for my coach who was talking about these things in practice. You know, we're in the playoff yeah. hunt. And he's not talking about basketball. We're talking about why we're here. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I just think that's a very interesting spot to be in. 
and you help athletes through that, right? I try, like you said, just like a coach at the end of the, at end of the day, I can't believe I just used that cliche at the end of the day. They have a tremendously powerful platform. Yes, I've done a lot of media training. We do a little less now. But you know, if I really want to do media training, I really wouldn't work with the athletes. I'd work with the population and the, and the audience and the, and, the, and, the, and the reporters. That's also who needs training. It's like if you're doing like HR work in companies, you shouldn't just work with the person that's being interviewed for the job. You should work with the HR department who's interviewing them. Mm. And I think that just as much training needs to be done. And I'm not against the media at all. I have friends that are in the media. They're leaders. But the media also should be getting trained and understand the power of empathy and what kind of questions need to be asked. Let's be honest, even with the Kaepernick situation, I think a lot of the media, even me to a certain degree, got it wrong early. You know, yeah. got it wrong. Like even Roger Goodell said it. He's like, I wish we would have figured it out early. Like they got it wrong. And just admit that. Like yes. even I didn't, I wasn't like against it, but I wasn't like, yes, Cap, you're doing the right thing early on. I got it wrong. So the bands need training. I just don't have the bandwidth to, to work with all of To all work of with the, the entire United. world. <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. I do band consulting. <laughs> Who's your audience? Everyone. <laughs> the world. I don't have a niche. I train everybody. So anyway, but that, that's something that uh, I do start to realize, like, yes, these athletes do have a platform. And yes, I'm not a fan of this, like, just stick to sports. It's just such a ridiculous comment. You would never say that to an engineer. Just stick to engineering. Just stick to whatever. Just stick to painting. Like, it just never is said. But with sports, it's like, stick, stick to sports. It's such a bizarre statement. Sports? <laughs> I'm about to go on a tangent. Is oh, the most It's the most siloed industry yeah. in the world. They tell you the phrase you always hear is stay in your... Your lane. Your lane. You would never say that to any other industry. As a matter of fact, there's this whole movement that started 10 years ago called decision intelligence. Mm. And it's uh, how you actually help you. It's the confluence of machine learning and human intelligence to create decisions that lead to actions that lead to outcomes. And as I was reading this book called Link... It blew me away because Dr. Laurie Pratt outlined this like, oh, well, if you, when you have these different silos, everybody has different jargon. And what's preventing the best outcome is that people actually can't communicate using a common language. So they use visual imagery of how to map this out. I'm like, that's sports. <laughs> totally. Totally. I love that. You're like, Daniel Lane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's being chipped away, Eric, even recently. I think mm. that's finally like, again, when we all can acknowledge like we didn't get it right, we missed it. And I, I'm glad that that's a silly statement. Now. I'm glad that you could say stay in your lane. And almost everyone that I think uh, that I surround myself with would be like, yeah, that's absurd. So that's being chipped away. And the best coaches don't do that. Like I've never worked for Bill Belichick, but mm. I have friends that have. <laughs> so and they, they're like, he's going to come and ask you questions. Yeah. Like you better be prepared to really reflect on the entire place. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Because everything affects everything. So anyways, we can get back on relationships, but I have a question. So you had this whole time period with an acting. Do you still keep up with Pete or any of your other acting friends? That's a good question. I do. You know, I haven't talked to Pete in years, which mm. I do think about a lot. And it's, we, 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 it was very amicable. It's just he, he is a very quiet person. He's not a, you know, you don't hear about him in, you know, magazines, newspapers, and the media, really. But uh, I have, I'm always will be indebted to him. Yes, because I'm 50 now, Eric, and, and I was in the industry in my early 20s and if I have friends that are still in the industry, they have been paid. There's, unless they have a trust fund, 
they somehow have found like a, a rhythm. You know what I mean? Yeah, or else yeah. you, they would have rotated out. So yeah, there's been some really neat friendships that I forged early, like in the commercial world and in television sitcoms and film. And some of my friends have found some tremendous success, which is awesome. And so, yeah, I've been able to, to kind of keep up with those folks and they've been very supportive of what I do. And, but I'm not like actively in the Hollywood industry anymore. I got you. So you moved to Bradenton, Florida. Yeah. And you start working at IMG. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's going on there when you're at IMG? Did you just start? They're like, hey, Steve, can you do what you did for Pete for the world for IMG? I mean, what happened here? Like literally what you just said. Like, no joke. Would, you, would you come to IMG? I mean, I had some meetings, obviously, and flew out to Bradenton, which is where I live now. So, and they were like, could you offer this program to like all the athletes that we train? And I said, yeah. So they gave me sort of a space to be in this incredible like Disney world of, of youth sports. And then we grew it into like doing corporate training for the adults because there's adults. I mean, it's a whole community. Yeah. So yeah, we were there 10 years from 2003 to 2013. We had an opportunity to not just teach junior athletes, but teach teams. And, and actually, it's, it's Eric, it's how we met. Because yeah. through that relationship, we were introduced to Florida State football through the mental conditioning department at IMG. And so I was able to go up to Florida State and start working with the football team, which is where you and I would sit in 104-degree weather on the side of the football practice. Joe Campbell or whatever, uh, just hang out. Yeah, yeah. so that that was an incredible experience. And, and more than just working with these folks, we were able to get reps, you know, and, 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 you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this for, you know, many years ago, 10,000 hours. I feel like we got like 30,000 hours of, mm. of training. We're teaching six hours a day, five days a week. You're, you're honing your curriculum. Everything I designed for Sampras with this improvisation based, what we call game theory, gamification concepts, we were able to teach these young folks and these corporations and these teams that came in. And so we were able to like figure out what worked and what didn't. And if you can capture a 14 year old's attention, who's basically there to like hone their sport and they're coming in for like an hour to do this elective program that they really don't want to do. Like no one's uh, like, no 14 year olds like can't wait to do communication training. Like that's going to be fun. And what let do they call not- it? Communication training? Well, we called it Game On because okay, cool. of the name, the name of the company. So we were able to call it Game On, but the understanding was it was leadership and communication. And so we were forced to make it as engaging and as uplifting and as empowering as possible. So that after the first session, those kids, instead of going, oh, I don't want to do this. And they would do it during like their lunch break, Eric. It was either like breakfast, lunch, or right after school. Like there was no, you don't teach at a sports academy. You don't, the elective is not taught at like 11 in the afternoon. It's like, you're teaching at 7 a.m., you're teaching at 12.30, or you're teaching at 5.30 in the mm. end of the day because you have to fit in between their school and their sport. So we tried to make it as engaging as possible. We had a wonderful run there. And yeah, that, that was a huge part of my journey. So I'll be honest. I guess it's the scientist in me that I'm always yeah. a little bit skeptical about anything when it first comes yeah. my way because you want to filter it. But the first time you came to Florida State, and we had some amazing people come in and you have this room full of people that are so diverse and so different. And you just, you know, as a coach, you don't see them as they are in their natural environment all the time. It takes a while to kind of get to that point. And then you would bring them out. And then all of a sudden we just see their personalities just blossom. And then the coaches and everybody's having a great time, but you had a rule and I've used this my entire career called, I call it the shim bomb rule. 
And it's one of my non-negotiables. We light each other up. So we light our opponent up on the field. Can you explain what that means? <laughs> well, I, I think that athletics, elite athletics is hard enough. And so when you go into a, a sport and you see that there's, in, there's tension within the team, that now you've created an opponent within your team and now you've got to go out and address. And I'm not looking like to like, when I say win and lose, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for like, a team to beat and harm another team. You know, yeah, yeah, it's know all within the con constructs of fair play. But why would you um, have opponent within your team? You're just adding more tension and more um, challenge when you should be a unified group. So then you can address the other team and be um, just a more, a more solidified unit. And the way that we try to do that is to break down barriers and get athletes to understand that they have to have each other's back. They have to lift one another up. That does not mean they have to be best friends with one another. I think that's the misnomer. You've got, you know, Eric, Florida State was 105 players on the team. The, the, to, to try to get 105 young men to be best friends with one another is, is not just impossible. It's, it's actually prideful if you're an instructor. If you're oh. a, an instructor and you come in here like, I'm going to get you to all like each other, that's, first of all, just ridiculously ambitious. And I think it's actually prideful. Yeah. But if you are an instructor and you can do that, you're a way better instructor than me. I could, yeah. I could promise you that. But the idea is like to go back to like light each other up. How can we laugh with one another, not at each other? How can we laugh with, not at? How can we learn a little bit about our fellow teammate? We call them coins. Things about them that have nothing to do with playing football. Like did their parents serve in a military? Do, or do they speak three languages? Were they a transfer from a junior college? Are they the oldest of five siblings? All of these things are coins and laughing with not at and coins are the two gateways where we can start to like not do kumbaya and hold hands and do trust falls, but to actually like see one another on a team as more than my backup, more than, oh, that's the guy, that's the walk on more than, oh, that's the five star recruit and actually look at them as a human being and light each other up so then you can get on the field, be one unit, and you have a much better chance for success against your opponent. That's why it was a non-negotiable for me. <laughs> well, thank can you. you talk about sarcasm? Oh, it's so extraordinarily dangerous. Wow, I did not see that question coming. It's so good that you asked that. It's really dangerous. I see it on Twitter. I think it's the cheap form of humor. I think it's a, uh, you're cutting a corner and, and I'm guilty. I, I, I'm less guilty now than I used to be. Again, it goes back to that first question you asked, Eric, like the magnet thing, like I'm getting to where I am now because of the mistakes I've made in the past. So anyone listening or watching this need to understand, it's not like you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm an epic communicator. I'm always a work in process. Oh, we all are. Sarcasm is one that I have absolutely done my best to master and diminish out of my routine. It is a cheap form of humor. And the problem is twofold. One is usually sarcasm is at the expense of someone else. And it's either at the expense of someone else personally, or you're making a joke because they don't catch up and get what you're saying. So in a sense, you're either making fun of someone's ability to keep up with you intellectually, or, they're, or you're actually making fun of them. So either way, it lands into the laugh at category instead of laugh with. And I know there's comedians out there, there are entertainers out there that would absolutely challenge what I'm saying right now, and that's okay. I'm just talking about the danger of sarcasm. Here's what happens, it gets a laugh, Eric, 
but the person laughing might be laughing out of nervousness, uncomfort, or because it's the social norm to do. When truly, if you receive sarcasm by someone, it's not a joyful laughter. It's not a pure laughter. It's usually a response that you have because it's the socially acceptable thing to do, but it doesn't create an additional bond, which to me is an opportunity to connect if you're using humor. So I'm not a fan of sarcasm and, and I can show the dangers of it in a corporation, a unit or a team. Wow. Because that, that's something that stuck with me. Because I think it's cutting. It's like it harms the person. And as a kid, personally, that was, uh, I put up a post today on social media about I was I was really bullied a lot as a kid because I was overweight and mm-hmm. uh, mocked and just just bad stuff. And sarcasm, you know, when you're in a group and somebody's poking fun of you, you're you're right. You 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 laugh because you want to be socially accepted, but at the inside you're just crumbling. It's something I think we all need to work better at not it's just like really weighing our words and considering the cost and that's one of the things that I've learned from you and I've tried to impart wherever I've been it's like let's be careful of how we use our words to build each other up I love that you asked that Eric before you go on I want to just sarcasm is a gateway can be a gateway if it's not controlled to to a real dangerous rabbit hole where you go, you start with like a little bit of a joke on someone. That's right, you laugh at. It happens all the time in the locker room. Let's use college athletics, a space that you and I have met and where you've been in for a long time. It starts with a, a joke at someone's expense. Then you get a little bit sarcastic. Then you get a little bit biting. Next thing you know, you're thrown out maybe like a, a racial uh, joke that no one checks on you or a, a joke that's perverted or a sex joke or a drug joke or a culture joke. Next thing you know, man, it's a rabbit hole. Because we right. didn't stop it early. And people might be, oh, you're being an alarmist, Steve. But I'm just saying, like, I've seen it. And here's what I'll tell you. It starts with laughing with. If you tell the team, hey, laugh with, not at, here's my theory. You're going to lose some jokes, but you're going to gain a ton of trust. You will lose some laughs. Like, if you go laugh with, not at, all the time, you're going to lose a few of those cheap laughs that you used to get in the locker room. But the point being is by doing that, you'll gain a ton of trust and people will put their guard down. And then you'll actually start to get to know one another. And it goes back to what you said. You'll start to be able to light one another up because people's guards are going to be down because they're not going to be feeling like they're going to be clowned or shamed. That's oh, beautiful. So game on. So you developed 2013, you developed game on, right? Is that when well, it became official? Really 1997 was game on started okay. with Sampras. Moved game on to IMG in 2003 stayed game on and then but you're not you're not way off in 2013 we uh moved out of img academy and then game on became more of a sort of national presence focusing on corporations military and sports so that was that was the year 2013 when we became an organization outside of the partnership with img academy and a simple elevator pitch is to improve the world through purposeful and authentic engagement communicate (laughs) lead and empower. Why did you choose communicate, lead and empower? Like what do those three things mean to you? Yeah, that's good. I think communicate was definitely the first one that landed just because of this concept of, we wanted to stay away from media training. We had started with that, but we felt like there was so much more because there's so many more than just Pete, Pete Sampras. There's a very few select elite athletes at that level. Right. You know, so communicate was just to me, just sort of the, the thing that uh, artificial intelligence can't take away, virtual can't take away. We always are going to need, and we're learning this right now, 
to communicate. We found that sort of leadership fell into that category as so a lot of discussion on leadership. You know what it also was, was what we are not. So communicate, lead, empower. The empower part we talked about early in this conversation, Eric, which was my passion and the curriculum, we found the result was people felt uplifted. People felt like they were special in the room. People felt like they were honored. So the word empowered was sort of a default. We also had to acknowledge what we were not. We, we didn't want to be in the psychology space. We didn't want to be in the, in the mindfulness space, even though we work closely with that space. It was important to also acknowledge what we're not, because I'm not a fan of trying to play surgeon if I don't have a doctorate. So those three words kept us safe. And it really, we found those were the three words that we found the result of our curriculum was people were improving their communication. People realized they all have the potential to lead. And everyone that we that dove in, if we taught well, felt empowered. So oh. that's how we landed on those three words. Because that's hard. Coming up with a mission statement and core values or principles, whatever you're calling, are these your core values or is it just like- Yeah, the- it was our mission statement. They call it our mission statement to, yeah. to do our best, to do our best to improve the world through purposeful and authentic engagement. Yeah. That's difficult to come up with. Yeah. Well, we didn't come up with it early. I think the phrase actually came about around 2012 and we had already been in existence since 1997. So those listening are like, you know, I don't have my mission statement yet. I don't have that epic phrase that I can put on the wall in that beautiful <laughs> like font. Give yourself grace and know uh, that, you know, if we would have done our mission statement, Eric, early in game on, it would have probably been like improving media training and helping athletes convey their story. Well, think about that. If I would have put that on the wall, that would have been painted over because four years later, we're out of media training or not, we're more than media training. So yeah. it, evolved, it evolved, it evolved. And then it was like, oh, yeah, we're really talking about the word like you know, purposeful is a word we use a lot and authentic is a word we use a lot. So that became part of our statement. I love it. Personally, having to do this is hard and I'm yeah. still struggling, you know, to go through this process. And I'm always interested in what people's vision, mission, core values type of things are. Mm-hmm. And with any company, especially a startup or when you're kind of getting going, you're, it's an iterative process. And, you know, you think you're going to be one thing and then six months later, you've taken a left turn because you find out that this is really the pain point. But um, you have four pillars to your company. You do presentation skills, public skills, team building, leadership development work. Can you talk me through like what you guys are providing? Because there are so many cool things with Game On that I've been personally, like I've personally experienced. And I know that you guys have, have expanded your portfolio. So I'd love to hear more about it. Thank you, Eric. Well, we really looked at our curriculums. We you know we're based in improvisation, role play, and like I say, game theory. We list out, just like a physical coach would list out like all of your workouts. So we have all these exercises and we broke them into four categories. So our main that we're really known for is what we call TLC, teamwork, leadership, and communication. That was what we did at Florida State. We weren't coming in to be the psychologist on campus. We weren't coming in to be your offensive coordinator. We were working on teamwork, leadership, and communication as clear as day. So that's one segment. And then our curriculum that we use for the teamwork, leadership, and communication is focused on those themes. The second one that we found was a natural progression was what we call now presenting, which is public speaking and presentation skills. That's kind of based off of our media training, but it also offered to corporations that are going into sales, going into like any type of presentation. In fact, we're doing a lot of that now because we're teaching virtual communication. How do you teach people not to be cheesy? 
when they're <laughs> trying to sell because I watch yeah. Shark Tank a lot. I love it. And like these people come in and they're like, hi, my name is, and you're just like, whoa, yeah. whoa. Like, yeah. and I understand like when you're on a presentation that you have to ramp it up a little bit or else yeah. you're going to seem dead. But can you give us a, not the secrets, yeah. but just a few things like. No, I think there's two concepts. One is not even an exercise. It's a theory, which is like, ask the person, what do you respond to when someone's selling to you? You know, think about that for a moment. So if you're a salesperson, instead of thinking about the needs of the, of the consumer who's buying, put yourself as the consumer. What do you truly respond to? And usually the answer is someone along the lines of, I want that person to be trustworthy. Great. What does that sound like? I want the person to be authentic. Now, that's a big one. It's not about acting authentic. It's about being authentic. So if you can ask the salesperson, what do you respond to when you're being... Because keep in mind, every salesperson's also been sold because we're all a consumer nation. And once they start to define what they respond to, then you reverse engineer it and you say, great, so let's try to get there. So here's one just sample exercise, Eric, yeah. I'll give you, which is a concept called 853. It's really basic. Okay. We won't do the exercise, but we'll talk through it. And I'll just ask the, the, the athlete, the salesperson, we'll all have three chairs and I'll have them talk about a something that has nothing to do with their product. It could be, it's called expert speaker. Just, they'll just, I'll say you're an expert in roller coaster racing, roller coaster, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and, and the only rule is they have to agree with me. I have to agree with them. And we got to take care of each other. That's the setup. Yes. And I have them start in the five chair. And the five chair is sort of where we start. It's the sort of present focus. It's kind of like how you and I started this, this podcast. Just sort of in the five. And we weren't like, hey, everybody. And we weren't <laughs> like, I'm so humbled and blessed to be. <laughs> and then the three chair is calm, observe, and listen. It's a little bit more lean back. There's nothing wrong with it. A little bit more calm, observed, listen. And then the eight chair is energetic, enthusiastic, and passionate. And all three chairs are awesome. And what I do is I interview them on a ridiculous topic. It has nothing to do with their product. But what I have them do is I have them switch the chair depending oh. on the question. And what they start to see is that the three is just as valuable as the eight. And to change speeds is really powerful. And what that does is get them out of the default that a lot of people go to is just jump right to the eight. Because if you say to someone, hey, sell me your product, they're usually not going to be like, um, well, let me ask you a few questions about what you're looking for. Like they don't go to default. <laughs> sell your product. It's like, well, let me tell you a little bit about it. <laughs> and so anyway, my whole point is 853 has been very productive. It's a old exercise and it's way more powerful than telling a human being to calm down and chill out, which in the history of calming down and chilling out, I don't think anyone calms down and chills out when they're told that. And also it avoids the other cliche, which is, hey, you got to bring it. You got to step up. And so to remove those phrases and just give them three numbers is really powerful. And people are listening going, this is really simple. Yes. I've spent 24 years trying to be as simple as I possibly can because complication just confuses the heck out of all of us. No, the most simple things. Uh, there's a book called Insanely Simple Yeah, about Apple. And you're right. I see you hit a phrase here just a second ago that I want to circle back to. It brought up memories. When you said, take care of each other. That's one of the things you talk about when you do improv is take care of the other person. Why do you, why do you talk about that? I think it's a gateway to empathy. You know, so when I was doing improvisation in Chicago... I never sat there and said, I'm going to be a successful actor and be celebrity and be famous. That was never my drive, partly because I just didn't like the ambiguity of and the anxiety of being an actor and the unknown. That was very difficult. 
But I remember being in an improv class and the acting teacher said, when we do improv, when we're in a scene, we must take care of one another. And I just thought that was like the most like radical thing. Like, that's so cool. Why is that only in an improv class? Why can't that just be like a general like rule of thumb? Like take care of each other. And it yes. sounds so simple, but it's way different than you've got to get the person to like you. That's different. That's not what we're looking for because that's a dangerous trap. So yeah, when you take care of someone, what you end up doing is you end up being able to connect it to any environment. If it's a football team, like take care of your teammate. I didn't tell you to be your best, their best friend. I didn't tell you to not compete with them. I didn't tell you to not to get after it, but I just said, take care. What does that look right. like to you? And then it's fascinating because you, when you empower people to, to, to define what taking care of looks like, you actually really are pleasantly surprised that you might see things that you didn't even expect. Like take care might be like to remember someone's name. Take care might be to like, let the freshman know if you're a senior, hey man, this is where you sit during the meetings. That is so simple. Like you said, and yes. simple from Apple. Telling the freshman, you're a senior. Hey man, don't sit there. That's where the offensive linemen sit. I'm not shaming you. Go ahead and join me over here. Like, do you know how radical that move is for that freshman? Makes them feel welcome. Like they're part of the team immediately. And you saved them the pain and embarrassment of, I know in my life, it would have been like, yeah, let the freshman go sit over there. Totally. So think about that, Eric. If you're going with laugh with, not at. If you're going with laugh at, you let them sit there. And right. then you watch the ridiculousness of the seat, all the big linemen coming in, offensive linemen coming in, clowning the dude because he sat in the wrong seat. If you laugh with, not at, you say, hey, man, come join me over here. And by the way, that freshman, what does he do when he's a senior? Right. Same thing. That's, that's it's a learned it. behavior. That, thank you. That's the multiplication. That is what we're doing is we're not in for like a Band-Aid. I want to work with the team and I get in as a fresh uh, with freshmen and, and, and the seniors. And then when that, then you're creating a pattern, you're we're really, you're talking about generational wealth, you know, mm. because now that senior who was a freshman, he got taken care of and didn't get shamed. He didn't get clowned, loves the program, gets it. And then there's always going to be a freshman who sits in the wrong seat always. And that's kind of a metaphor and that's it. And then you almost start to plant seeds where you don't have to be coming in and doing communication training and leadership training and mental conditioning all the time because you've created a culture and a system that almost feeds itself because not only are you as the outside instructor, you, Eric, as you know, when you're part of a program, but now you've got almost all the juniors and seniors on the team. They're also teacher's assistants. Wow. That uh, generational wealth. That is a dude. This is some gold right here. I'm lo- I, I've literally taken two pages of notes already. This is fantastic. Wow. So I'm, I'm a little bit. Uh, I'm a little off right now. So I, I got so lost in these in my thoughts. No, it's fine. It's authentic, actually, versus like a script. To be honest with you, Eric, I love it. I really enjoy learning this stuff because I'm thinking through. There was a coach in and Wimberley High School, I think, in Wisconsin. I think that's what the name of the school is. They won like 72 straight football games. I mean, this is like a powerhouse. I can't remember the head coach's name right now. It's bad because I've he's a great dude. And I went to this thing called the Track Football Consortium. And it's just like really niche group of radical track coaches and high school coaches. They're doing some nutty stuff. And it meets in Chicago, outside of Chicago. And I went and it was like some random people I knew in the NFL were like, hey, like we all kind of knew we were out of the secret. And the first person to present, it wasn't on training, it was on culture. And I could not have written anything down faster because he is talking 72 straight games. You need to listen. Yeah. 
And he talks about how the seniors serve the freshmen. Yeah. They do not abuse them. They carry their mm-hmm. stuff. It is like this whole mindset flip. And what happens is, is you're, you're literally welcoming your teammates in. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. But like now, you've, when I was, that's where my head went. You said generational wealth because it keeps paying it forward. And they're like, yeah, instead of me wanting to abuse the freshman, because that's your natural inclination. That's your selfish alter ego. You're like, dude, it happened to me. I'm going to do it to this guy. That statement right there is so powerful. Just, Eric, you're on track right now, brother. Get this outside of sports now. Really mm-hmm. think. We want to like actually do what we said in our mission, which is do our best to purposefully and authentically you know, impact the world. That's just the way it was done to me. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Well, that's just the way it's been done. That's just the way I know. Whether you're looking at any organization, any organization in government, any organization in corporation, that is a very powerful, dangerous statement. So why not make it service-oriented? And by the way, you can do it. This guy, this coach that, that won 72 games, like, no one's going to call him soft. He's got 72 straight wins, man. But the notion that like we're going to have the older folks serve the younger people, the naysayers who don't want to let go of power, by the way. Right. You follow? They don't want to relinquish their power. They're going to say, you're just going to create a bunch of soft. You're going to – I I didn't know. I don't know whose voice this is, by the way, that I'm doing. But, you know, you're just going to – Go gonna, for you're it. A, <laughs> you're, you're, yeah. You're, that's classic. And it's just – it's just a, it's a lie. It's a total yeah. myth. Like, first of all, there's there's a balance between like seniors serving freshmen and also like there's still a respective hierarchy. You're not like blowing everything up and all of a sudden the freshmen are like just taking over and being disrespectful. It's a mutual understanding. It's 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 more than what people assume. But yeah, I'm a firm, firm believer in servant leadership. I'm a firm believer in seniors and juniors if you're looking at the college structure. And I'm just, I do not believe the hazing process works at all. I think teams succeed in spite of hazing one another. And when they succeed, they're like, well, it's because that we have rules and we, we put the freshmen in their place. No, it has nothing to do with that. You have, you have 11 McDonald's All-Americans on your team. That's why you won. And you won in spite of the fact that you have these ridiculous rules where you haze the freshmen and they have to dress up in weird costumes during Halloween and they got to put pacifiers in their mouth. None of that ever in the history of ever has helped win a championship. <laughs> Never in the history of ever. That's great. I've heard it said, uh, who was it? I think he started Oak Tree Capital. He said, never, never evaluate the quality of a decision by the outcome. Outcome. You just don't know. You could have gotten the success in spite of, a decision, of, a, of an action. That's so really how bad. do we become introspective of our process? Like how do we, put on the humility cap and go, let's look at what we did to uncover what may become better. Does that make sense? Like we won. Yeah. Yeah. But like, how would you shift into that mindset? Cause you're a, you're a business owner and I'm sure there's been times where you've, or hopefully now like you're flourishing. Right. But like, there's still things you're like, Oh, we could have approved on this. How do you do that? It's going to sound so insanely simple, but if we can go on that theme, Eric, that, that you brought up off of, I think it was Apple. It was it someone in yeah. Apple. Was it Steve Jobs that wrote that or someone? No, the, the uh, marketing firm Kiat Day, I think that's how you say it, that did all the... Day. Chaya Day. Chaya my Day. bad. Chaya Day. No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I only knew it because in my acting career, they were a huge advertiser and they would... Yes. Talk, you, you got a Chaya Day spot. Oh, goodness. So the question was, how do we get to a place where we can be introspective and actually assess, accurately assess 
the idea of life decisions and outcome. And here's my answer. And, and I would love for the smart people that are listening and, and observing this podcast to give feedback as well, because we're not the only, we're not the gurus in this room. I'm part of this. I'm on the, I'm in the game. Yes. Here we go. Rest, fuel, and move. I believe for me personally that I make better business decisions and I can see things clearly when I've gotten at least seven to eight hours of sleep. That's it. You're speaking my love language because that was my PhD. (laughs) I know. Well, that's the other thing. I have a little inside baseball as I know your backstory here. Fuel, try to eat slightly healthy. Move, try to do some form of exercise. We're complicating the heck out of this and people writing book after book after book after book about like introspection and data analysis and artificial intelligence and, and body movement and language. And when someone looks to their left, they're not telling the truth. Blah! Try to get eight hours of sleep. If you can't get seven. And if you can't get seven, get six. And if you're getting five, you're sleep deprived and you're going to make poor decisions right. straight up. Try to eat fairly healthy and give yourself some breaks every now and then, and try to do some form of physical activity within your physical means and within your social structure means. And if you can do those three things, when I do those three things, which I don't always do heroically, when I do those three things, then I have a better idea of decisions versus consequences and outcomes. I lead my team better. And let me flip it. When I'm not eating well, when I'm not getting sleep, and when I am um, not physically active, I'm not as sharp. And I make poor, I make less acute decisions. That's it. So you're basically creating the conditions for success. Yeah. And you still won't be perfect. But your question was, how do we look at a situation and really assess it and analyze like, huh, we got the outcome we wanted, but let's look back or even let, let's go back to sports. Let's look at the play. Let's assess yeah. the play. Well, how are you going to assess things? How do you assess a math equation? How do you assess a film study? Well, I think it's easier to assess a film study when you're not sleep deprived. When you've eaten fairly well and you've gotten a good workout in, your endorphins are flowing, your brain is clear, you're not going to be still the sharpest person in the room, but you can be a lot sharper than if you're on five hours of sleep and when you're eating you know, horrific and your body doesn't feel good and all you want to do is, is doze off. I love it. Um, That's, now you're speaking <laughs> my love language. I know. The sad part is, Eric, this stuff doesn't go viral on Twitter because it's just, who's going to get a standing ovation when you do a speech? It's like, guys. Gals, try to get eight hours of sleep and drink eight glasses of water. Ah, the crowd goes wild. This guy's spitting fire. Like, said no one. Said no one. You know, said no one. What gets applause is like, rise and grind, don't give up, dominate the day, win the now, and all these epic phrases. And everyone's like, dude, this guy's spitting fire. First of all, any speaker who's spitting fire, like, that's just dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> just literally dangerous. That's putting the front row in harm's way. And I'm not, I'm not mocking that, but now I've just, you've got me on this. We're like, I just feel like we're being sold these like weird catchphrases and then we believe them and they're actually really counterproductive and you can't always assess the harm right away. Like in the physical conditioning space, you can see if someone's squatting wrong, like you would pick that up right away, Eric, knowing your background, you'd be like, that person is going to hurt their back. Right. And the day after their workout, they're going to be like, Eric, doc, my back is hurt. Right. right? Like it's mm-hmm. pretty clear right away. Like, Oh, I'll tell you why your back is hurt. Your posture was off and you were taught incorrectly. That's not always the case when it comes to communication and culture and leadership training. Cause it's more, it's less tangible. You can't see the pain right away. But when you start to see an instructor tell an audience to like, just, just outwork everybody and dominate the day and win it right now. And like win at all costs. And you start to hear that, you're like, oh, wow, someone's going to blow their back out. 
No, man, I'm with you. I, uh, I'm working on some core values right now. One of them is just put in a good day's work. Yeah, that's great. And by, I'm all about hard work, man. So are you. Like, yeah, but like, like, you know, like, yeah. just, just, just get some wins. <laughs> like, you're not going to just, every day is not going to, you know. Yeah. So I want to ask you this. You're married and you have two girls, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And how long have you been married now? I've been married 10 years. My 10-year anniversary will be in next month, October. Congratulations. Thank you, my friend. You know, we say congratulations because marriage is not an easy thing. It's not easy for my experience. I'm 11 years in, going on 12. We have three kids. I want to ask you, like, how do you use these skills to improve your family dynamics in your marriage and relationships? Man, if we're going to teach this, like, be authentic, don't just act authentic, then I'll tell you, it's hard. And anyone who's observing and watching any of these podcasts going on Twitter, I will tell you, Everyone is teaching leadership communication. They are working on it regularly and fail regularly. It's so important. Like, you know, we talk about comparisons, the thief of joy. It's not my phrase. I think it's Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, Eric, the irony is we have to be careful that we don't become experts with corporations and with government and with sports teams. And then all of a sudden come home and we do exactly the opposite with our spouse that we're teaching to uh, the audiences. And I think that's a real challenge in the public speaking industry, especially when we had uh, ability to travel. So obviously during this pandemic, there's not been live trainings, but when there were and when there will be, you have to be very careful that, uh, and the analogy I use is a strength coach. The strength coach, he or she needs to also stay in physical shape within reason yes. as an expert in that field. And that usually, you don't usually meet a strength coach who's like smoking a cigarette and uh, constantly eating a burger. Like, let's get in shape. Let's do this. <laughs> like that's not, that person's not going to get a lot of clients. Um, oh, that's so true. And so to answer your question, yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, my wife and I, she's amazing. I also waited till I was 40 to get married, which was really hard, but the greatest decision ever. You know, I just wasn't ready before that. So yeah, when I'm teaching, I have to remember to also include my, my concepts at home, meaning I need to listen. I need to honor my children. I can't sit in an audience and be like, hey, you guys, eight, five, and three, don't, don't tell people to calm down and chill out because in the history of calming down and chill out, no one calms down and chill out and then immediately get home and yell at my eight-year-old <laughs> to calm down and chill out. Like yeah. That would be the epitome of irony. So my main focus is to make sure my home is in order because that's the other element. We talked about rest, fuel, move. If my home is in order, then I feel like I have more uh, clarity and more authority to be able to teach. And my home is not in order. The first thing I need to do is hold on to teaching and make sure my home is in order. How are you working from home and being productive right now? That's or are you working well, from home? No. So that's the nice thing is our office is right down the street from my home, which is really uh, just, I've so, I'm so blessed to have that. So I just come to an office. It's like a little house and none of my employees are here right now because we're trying to honor and respect the distance. And if they do come in, they're on the other side of the building and I'm in my little office right now and I'm able to work and the kiddos aren't knocking on the door. And, but I have done a lot of Zooms from home and I'll tell everyone, give people grace. You know, you're going to start yeah. to hear dogs bark. You're going to start to see what I call little, little employees and if they pop on the screen, wave to them and say their name if you know it. No eight-year-old is going to steal your trade secrets. Like, let's, let's, <laughs> let's get over this. this is a, anyway, so I'm able to get away from the house and, and, and do 
this type of thing and be focused. And then, um, and then I, I come home and I'm able to separate the work from the home, which not everyone can do. So I'm very, I'm very sensitive to that. It's been hard. I mean, with teaching yeah. now, trying to get more involved with that, help my wife, you know, helping my son read, like trying to help him create a love for that. And yeah. you start thinking about, okay, all these things I do at work, like how can I now do that here? And am I giving my kids enough of me? And if I'm not, like something I've really struggled with over the past few years and really come to a resolution that I don't want my legacy to be some dumb rings and trophies. If it was the NFL and you said who won the Super Bowl, I'd probably be like Patriots, you know, like, but other sports leagues, I couldn't even tell you who won the championship a year ago or two years. It just like, it just doesn't happen unless you're a fanatic over a team. Right. So good. And so I don't want my legacy to be something like that. I would rather have my legacy be my family and then the relationships and the impact. And so it's, it's recalibrated me personally on how I view things. I think it's something that a lot of people are going through COVID right now. I think it's actually in a weird way. I don't want to sound cavalier. It's one of the positives. And maybe I should say silver lining. I don't like to say yeah. anything about positive about a global pandemic. I want to be really sensitive to all that's going on. But there's a silver lining in that, yeah, this concept of like, my life is my job. Like, think about that phrase. My life is my job. And, and um, early bird gets the worm. Like, I actually think people are like, wait a second. It, it's, it's, it's hard, but it is kind of pleasant to be with my kids right now. It is nice to drop them off at school. And again, all of these factors play into like your social structure and your socioeconomics. And I want to be acknowledge that. So it's not like, oh, everyone should be able to drop their kids out of school. No, not everyone can. You right. have jobs. You've got all sorts of dynamics. But yeah, I think... Most people that I've spoken to have realized, wait a second, you know, getting seven, eight hours of sleep is actually like really incredible. Like my anxiety has gone. Like yeah. I don't have depression. I'm actually was sleep deprived, you know, or wow, it's kind of cool to make breakfast for my kids, like and frustrating and annoying, but I'll take it. So all of this and you can still be successful. So I'm actually really excited to amplify men and women who are leaders in their industry who also are comfortable enough to acknowledge that their spouse is important to them if they are blessed to have kids, that their kids are important to them, that their health is important to them. That does not diminish their coaching, teaching, business leading, CEO, all of that. I think they can coexist and it's nice to start to hear that story versus I sleep in the office. I call it the badge of busy. If people start wearing the badge of busy, I've listened to corporate conversations recent, lot recently before the pandemic that were so wild. Think about this conversation, Eric. I heard someone that won't say the company. Someone walked by someone else. I was in the lobby waiting to speak and they were like, how you doing, man? And the other person was like, busy. The other one went, I'm swamped. The other one went, dude, I'm underwater. The other one was like, I'm drowning. And I realized they were competing to die. They were actually <laughs> in competition. They were competing to the bottom of the ocean, literally. How you doing? Busy, swamped, underwater, drowning. And it's like, where do you go from there? You're like, I'm dead. Why are we doing that? So I would like to get to a place where we, in sports, corporate, where we be like, how you doing? We're working hard, doing well, getting some sleep, and be back at it again tomorrow. But my worry is if people say that, they're afraid they're going to get fired because they're going to come across as lazy. Dude, that was <laughs> worth the whole podcast. <laughs> If anyone's going to stick around long enough to live, let's just go no, right to that. That was beautiful. So to kind of wrap this up, Steve, yeah. like, I don't know, leave us with something parting. Like 
today? What can we take away to be a better human being? Oh, Eric, I'm going to bring it. Spit fire. No, don't spit fire. Don't bring it. Don't (laughs) kill it. Oh, goodness. Ah, the one that's really coming to mind recently, Eric, is we got to give ourselves some grace. Give ourselves some grace. It doesn't mean, like, don't take accountability for your actions and don't be responsible. Don't work hard and all of those things. Work hard. Get up early. Take care of yourself. Put a good day of work in, like you said. But we got to give ourselves some grace. You know, we're on social media. At least I am on Twitter. And I feel like everyone's just written their third book during the pandemic. And I'm like, oh, it's three more books than I've written. You know, like, they're, they're just they're killing it. And, and that's just not accurate. So give yourself some grace. And that doesn't mean you're not going to um, work hard and you're not going to be disciplined. But that sort of, that helps me. I, I wish I could give some epic nugget. And I don't know, maybe part of the feedback is there's not some epic nugget. I would ask people like, uh, shoot, forget ask people. Let me tell what I'm trying to do is mm. go beyond the catchphrases, like go beyond the fortune cookie statements, you know, and, uh, and dig a little deeper, which by the way, means you got to carve out time you got to sacrifice a little bit, but go a little deeper than the fortune cookie statement. Because I think we are starving for more than you just got to take it one day at a time. Like that, that's great. <laughs> how do you, how do you apply that? You know, right. like, I'm not knocking these phrases, but if that's all we're going to do is just read the phrase. That's like saying, I'm going to lose weight by like reading about healthy food. Well, at some point you got to consume healthy food. Right. So this anyway. is so good. <laughs> Man, I have so many notes. Steve, you are an amazing human being. I'm so blessed to call you a friend and I'm thankful for what you're doing in communities and families. And I look forward to seeing you face to face again and giving you a hug and like having some just crazy riff about the past and in the future too. So thank you for being on today. Oh, Eric, it's such a pleasure. And 10 years ago, we used to do this on the side of the practice field at Florida State and now we're doing it virtually and, and let's hope we can do it for many, many years to come. Thanks, buddy, so much. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Also, if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum. Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook at Eric Corum, and LinkedIn at Eric Corum.